We are about to begin the last lesson in the fifth chapter of the Forerunners of the Faith curriculum titled Defending the Deity of Christ, Athanasius, and the Council of Nicaea. And just by way of review, by way of reminding us where we've been over the last several weeks in this portion of Forerunners of the Faith, we began this section by looking at the historical context of the Council of Nicaea. In doing so, we found that in the decades leading up to the beginning of the 4th century, that is the uh, beginning of the 300s, you had a progressive preparation for the Roman Empire to transition from an anti-Christian context to a Christianized empire. Who was the major figure that was responsible for transitioning the Roman Empire from an anti-Christian context to a Christian context? Michael? Constantine, Constantine right? Constantine the Great, or Constantine the First. He gained control of the Roman Empire in the year 312, and then in 313, he issues the Edict of Milan, which makes Christianity a legal religion. Formerly, it was, it was a religion that would entail persecution. It was a religion that would um, entail the empire treating them very, very poorly. And now, all of a sudden, 313 AD, because of Constantine uh, taking over leadership over the totality of the Roman Empire, you now have Christianity as a legal religion. That is, you can't persecute them anymore. Um, you're going to actually be penalized if you persecute Christians. And in the years following that, we see a continual improvement of how the Roman Empire regards Christians all the way to the mid to late 4th century where Christianity would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. So within less than 100 years, you go from Christians being hated in the Roman Empire, you go from Christians being persecuted and put in prison and taxed for their faith, and then less than 100 years later, you have it as the official religion. That's the historical context of the Roman Empire surrounding the Council of Nicaea. Now, um, who here can tell me, by way of review, a little bit about the Council of Nicaea? What was on the docket at the Council of Nicaea? What was going on? <laughs> Ellie. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. The Trinity was on the docket, and the word you were looking for was either essence, being, or substance. Those are our, all synonyms. Um, referring to the whatness of God, what God is, His deity, His divine nature. So, um, at the Council of Nicaea, you have Trinitarian discussions. And the reason why the Trinity was being discussed was due to whose false teaching? Who was teaching that Jesus was the first and greatest created being? Arius. That's right, Hannah. Very good. So you have this prominent teacher, this prominent teacher in Alexandria who's working with a guy by the name of Alexander in leadership and a guy by the name of Athanasius in leadership at the church in Alexandria, Egypt. And of these three significant leaders, 
you have Arius, one of the three prominent leaders, essentially goes rogue in his theology and begins teaching that Christ was the first and greatest created being by God. And that precipitated widespread confusion about um, God as, as um, Trinity. What does it mean for God to be Trinity? What's the inter-Trinitarian relationship between Father and Son? And of course, uh, later they would consider the relationship to the Holy Spirit, to the Father and Son. But primarily the focus is on Father and Son relationship in the divine being and by necessary consequences, is Jesus truly God? Is He co-equal, co-eternal with the Father? Or is He a creature? Or is He, yeah, He's, he's God, but he's, he's a little bit lesser than the Father. He's subordinate to the Father. Those are the conversations going on in the years leading up to the Council of Nicaea, which convened in 325 A.D. And you'll recall from previous lessons, there were three views that were proposed at the Council of Nicaea that the church of that day was able to embrace. And remember, this council, every single church in the Roman Empire was represented at this council. Constantine called the council. There was also several prominent political figures there as well. And these three views that were espoused were these. First, you had heterousios, Jesus the Son is of a different substance. Hetero meaning different. Usios meaning being or substance or essence. He's of a different substance. That was Arius' view initially. That got refuted pretty quickly. And then it came down to these two views. You either could say that Jesus was homoousios. He was of the same substance, the same being, the same essence of the Father. Or he was homoousios. That is to say, of a similar substance. He's not the same but he's similar. And of course, as we talked about in previous lessons, to be similar but not the same is ultimately to be what? Different. That's exactly right. So in time, you had the affirmation of the Nicene Creed, which a few weeks ago we uh, went over a handout for that Nicene Creed. We're also going to read it again today just by way of where we're going in today's lesson. And then in the previous, I think, three weeks... We spent two weeks looking at the biblical evidence for Christ's deity. In other words, how did the Council of Nicaea arrive at the conclusion from Scripture that Jesus is truly God, that He's equal in glory, equal in being, equal in everything to the Father, other than the fact that He's not the Father, He's the Son. We looked at that from Scripture for two weeks. And then last week, we looked at the historical evidence. How did prominent Christian leaders leading up to the Council of Nicaea perceive Christ? How did they see His person from Scripture? We looked at that historical evidence last week. That takes us today where we're going to, Lord willing, wrap up this section in Forerunners of the Faith by revisiting uh, a little bit more about the Council, but particularly we're going to focus on the, the, the most significant figure of the 4th century, particularly with regard to the Council of Nicaea, which was a man by the name of Athanasius. We mentioned him in previous lessons. Today we're really going to zero in on him and make some, what I believe to be, significant application that we can take away in our day and age as well. So um, with that being said, by way of recap, and I really am grateful for your participation in that recap, I'm, I'm very pleased with how you guys are um, absorbing this information. Let me open this up with a word of prayer, 
and then we're going to dive right into Roman numeral 5, very short um, vignette here about the council's conclusion, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time together looking at St. Athanasius of Alexandria. But let us pray before we do so. Our Father in heaven, you with your Son and Holy Spirit dwell in unapproachable light, and in you there is no darkness, there is no turning or shifting shadow. You are the simple, glorious, ineffable, incomprehensible, majestic Lord of lords and King of kings. You are the sovereign ruler and creator and sustainer of all of created reality. And even as we sit here this morning, we sit and we we think and we talk all because you have made it possible for us to do so. You sustain the laws of logic which make intellectual engagement possible. You sustain the beating of our hearts that enables us to live physical lives. You allow nature to remain uniform so that gravity and laws of mathematics and science and so on all remain orderly so that we can engage in intelligible experience in this world you've put us in. Father, you have authored history from eternity past. You declared everything that would ever happen in time. You orchestrate by your ordinary providence every detail that ever transpires under the sun. And one day, Lord, as you've declared from before the foundation of the world, you will make all things right when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead and to institute the new heavens and the new earth. Oh God, our hearts are overwhelmed with joy with awe as we contemplate the privilege that it is to know you as our Father through faith in Jesus Christ. We know we're not deserving of anything but your wrath. We know that we have not merited anything in and of ourselves but eternal judgment in hell. But God, because you are rich in mercy and grace and love, you have lavished every spiritual blessing upon us in Christ. You've seated us with him in the heavenly places. And God, you have promised that for all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never leave them or forsake them. They will be yours forever. Oh God, we ask that such glorious truths as these would propel us to worship you today on the day you have appointed out of seven to rest from our ordinary weekly activities and to focus on the age to come, to focus our thoughts on things above, not things of the earth, to sing to you, to pray to you, to sit under the preached word, to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh God, may this day be sacred. May it be something that we eagerly long for on a regular basis. We pray it would be pleasing in your sight as we engage in this uh, discussion on St. Athanasius, a man who you used profoundly in the 4th century to safeguard Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy. God, we pray that we would learn from his example insofar as his example points us to Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord and Savior, who is co-equal, co-eternal with you and your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit as well would give us illumination, that he would help us to accurately understand all of the truths we're going to be discussing today. And God, may we be prepared for the week that, uh, that lies before us to be good stewards of all you've entrusted us with, and God, to be your ambassadors wherever you've placed us for the spiritual good of your people, 
the conversion of those who don't know you and for your supreme glory. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, that takes us now to Roman numeral 5, the Council's Conclusion, Creedal Articulation. I do have some blanks to provide you with regarding answers for your workbook and um, just some thoughts for us to review before we get into the weeds on Athanasius. Roman numeral 5. Dr. Buznitz, in his teacher's curriculum, notes the following. He says... At the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., the true church arose to defend the deity of Christ from Arian attack. The Council of Nicaea did not, here's two blanks for you, determine or establish the doctrine of Christ's deity. First blank is determined. Second blank is established. The Council of Nicaea did not determine or establish the doctrine of Christ's deity. It rather affirmed and defended the doctrine that had always been taught by the church going back to the time of the apostles and being established in the scripture. So blank three and four there, affirmed and defended. Buznitz continues, the affirmation of Christ's deity was overwhelmingly recognized by those who participated in the council of Nicaea. Of the roughly 320 bishops who attended the council, all but two signed the Nicene Creed, and those two were ardent supporters of Arius. The Nicene Creed is one of the most influential in church history. Here is the crux of the creed. Does, do you guys have the creed in your workbooks? Okay, can I get a volunteer to read that for us? Hannah, take that for us. Thank you. just say this again, um, as I've said in previous lessons, it is possible to unknowingly, just by virtue of not having been trained in the teaching of Scripture, it's, it's possible to unknowingly embrace doctrine that's not consistent with the Nicene Creed and be a believer. That's certainly possible. But if you know what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, about the deity of Christ, or the deity of the Holy Spirit, and you reject the Nicene Creed's doctrine, which is rooted and grounded in Scripture, you are outside of orthodoxy. You are not a believer. And we'll talk about why we can reach that conclusion in just a few moments. I just want to put a bow on what Buznitz says here. Half a century later, at the First Council of Constantinople, 381 A.D., the Nicene Creed would be expanded to include more detail on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I actually gave you the extended version of the Nicene Creed when we looked at this a few weeks ago. But through the victory at the Council of Nicaea, we still find the controversy of Arianism continuing to spread throughout the Roman Empire over the next 50 years. So 
guys, I just want to say this. It's important to recognize that you can affirm error continually, even though it has been shown to you time and time and time again that it's wrong, that it's not orthodox, that it's heretical. You can continue to do that. And my friends, that is a very dangerous place to be. Um, We believe what we believe insofar that it's taught in Scripture. But if you're the only person that holds to a belief and nobody else in the church holds to that belief, you need to seriously consider whether or not your belief is valid. It is extremely arrogant and prideful to willingly hold to views that the church has rejected as heretical on the basis of what is found in the Word of God. Now, that takes us to our first group discussion question, and we'll open up the can of worms that I uh, just barely cracked open the lid on uh, just a few moments ago. Notice in your workbook, for those of you who have it, the discussion question in the little green box says the following. Earlier in this lesson, we noted that the authority for what we believe must be the Bible, not a church council. Why is that principle important to remember, especially when studying the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed? Now, I mentioned just a few moments ago, you cannot willingly reject the doctrine contained in the Nicene Creed and be a Christian. You are a heretic if you deny this doctrine. This is the standard of Trinitarian orthodoxy. Has been for basically, come 2025, it'll be 1,700 years. This is the standard. Now, is do I make that claim? And have Christians made that claim? Because the Council of Nicaea is of equal authority to the Bible? Do we say that because of that? Do we say that you can't believe contrary to this because the Council of Nicaea or the Nicene Creed is the ultimate authority for what we believe. No. Why can we make that claim? Sai, what do you think? Because the Bible has to be our ultimate standard. Because the Bible has to be our ultimate standard, and how does that relate to the Nicene Creed? The Bible's ultimate authority, and us saying that the Bible's our ultimate authority, but you can't reject this doctrine and be a believer. What's that? Because it's found in the Bible. That's what I was looking for right there. Very good, Ellie. My friends, the Council of Nicaea and all church councils and all creeds and confessions of faith that have ever been held throughout the course of church history, and I'm talking about the ecumenical creeds, I'm talking about the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Council of Chal- or the Creed of Chalcedon, so on and so forth, Those ecumenical or universal church creeds, they are authoritative, not because they in and of themselves carry ultimate authority. They are authoritative because they contain the accurate testimony of what the Bible teaches on these particular subjects. So the Nicene Creed is the standard for Christian orthodoxy in regard to the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, because this is what the Bible teaches. It's only for that reason. We throw the Nicene Creed out if it's not biblical, just like we would do with any other confession of faith. And there are some confessions of faith that come later in church history 
that Baptists would hold to, but Presbyterians wouldn't hold to. Or Lutherans might hold to it, and Anglicans might hold to something different. Denominational differences on the basis of their creeds and confessions of faith, those are not standards for orthodoxy like the Nicene Creed is. The Nicene Creed is a standard for Christians of every denomination, just like the Apostles' Creed, just like the uh, Chalcedonian Creed, which we'll look to uh, in future lessons. But you have ecumenical creeds formulated by the church. Remember, this point in church history, there are not denominations. There is no denomination at this point. There is just the church. Okay? There's different local churches scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, different regions, but there is only the church at this point. So these creeds, insofar they are biblical, these creeds bound these local churches together and they set the standard for Christian orthodoxy. Okay, Very important for us to keep in mind. Does anybody have any questions about that? Okay. So let me ask a follow-up question. Should every church today require their members to subscribe to the ecumenical creeds to be a member? What do you all think? I'd like to hear answers to this. To, should, every, should, should it be the responsibility of every local church if these were ecumenical creeds and standards of orthodoxy and they're thoroughly biblical... Should those be requirements doctrinally to join a local church? Yes. Okay, Matt thinks yes. Why do you think, Matt? Uh, because it's the, uh, the way uh, the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches. Yeah, I like that. Anyone else? Anyone think no? Okay. No. no you don't know? I'll tell you my belief on this. My belief is that, yes, we should. Until you had the East-West split, I think it was in the 8th century, maybe later. Um, but until you have the East-West split, you don't even have differentiation within the world at that point of the church. There's no denominations. This is orthodoxy. This is scripture truth here. And again, insofar it's biblical, and insofar these creeds pertain to the totality of the church, my conviction personally is that every church today that's orthodox should say, yeah, we, because remember, the church is not just your local church. The church is universal. It's Catholic, small c, right? Not Roman Catholic. Universal, small c Catholic. So we are just as much part of Christ's body in FBC Edna as our brothers and sisters at FBC Lolita, at FBC Houston, at First Presbyterian Church, Jackson, Mississippi, or, you know, insert whatever name of church you want to name in the United States or every other part of the world. And what binds us together, apart from the gospel and our shared faith in Jesus Christ, what binds us together are creedal articulations such as this. Standards of orthodoxy. Shared convictions on these beliefs. So again, you can unknowingly 
reject these creeds and still be a believer, you just may be ignorant. You may just not even know about the creeds. But when you come into contact with them, and you still reject, like those people did for some 50 years after the Council of Nicaea, you're at that point in very dangerous territory, potentially even revealing the fact that you're not converted. It's a very dangerous place to be. Any questions before we move on to look at Athanasius? Okay, Roman numeral 6. I love this. The title of this section is Standing Against the World. There is a historical statement about Athanasius. Uh, it was Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. That was how he was known throughout his era because of his firm, unwavering stance for truth. He was also called the saint of stubbornness because no matter what persecution he faced for his beliefs, he was not going to waver on the truths of Scripture with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a little bit of context here from my teacher's guide, and I want to open up the floor shortly thereafter to talk about some of the historical testimony we're going to consider together regarding Athanasius. Buznitz notes the following. He says, Though he was only a deacon at the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Athanasius spent most of the 4th century fighting the false teachings of Arius. He became the bishop of Alexandria just a few years later in 328 AD. Over the next 45 years of his ministry, he would be exiled five times, totaling 17 years. Think about that, guys. 45 years in ministry, you are exiled for 17 years of it. You're on the run. If you enter into the territory you're not supposed to go into, you're either going to be put to death or thrown in prison. That was the cost Athanasius had to face for his stance for his, uh, for, for his stance on the deity of Christ, for his unwavering commitment to Nicene Orthodoxy. And Buznitz continues. He says, despite being denounced at the Council of Nicaea, Arianism continued to be a popular view in the Roman Empire. And as a result, Athanasius repeatedly found himself in the political crosshairs of his enemies. In 336 A.D., Athanasius was falsely accused of kidnapping another bishop and cutting off his hand for use in magical incantations. And although he was able to prove his innocence, Athanasius was still sent into exile by Constantine when his opponents accused him of interfering with wheat shipments from Alexandria to Rome. Two years after that exile, Athanasius was able to return back to Rome because Constantine passed away. Now, a short time after that, a supporter of Arius convinced Constantine's son to get rid of Athanasius. So like father, like son, we're going to get rid of this troublemaker. And that resulted in two of Athanasius's exiles. One exile was from 339 to 346, and another was from 356 to 361. In 362... Fast forward into the next exile. Athanasius was forced into exile by Emperor Julian. Um, 
And lastly, fifth exile, occurring under Emperor Valens, Athanasius was kicked out of the Roman Empire, not because he did anything wrong, but because this emperor wanted to follow suit with Julian and punish this guy who was just a big troublemaker for several years in the past. So that's a very broad 30,000-foot flyover of the exiles that Athanasius had to face over the course of his 45 years of ministry. So 45 years in ministry and 17 years of that ministry was faced in exile, faced persecution, faced a cost for his faith. And that opens up the floor now for a great opportunity for group discussion. The question I want us to consider amongst ourselves is this. What are some biblical passages that demonstrate how Athanasius treatment by opponents should not come as a surprise. So the people that opposed Athanasius's faith, and even the people who professed to be Christian but opposed Athanasius's theology, why do we think, or at least why should we think, that his treatment shouldn't be a surprise? Think about that. You're getting persecuted for standing for truth. You're being persecuted for being a Christian. Do we have any biblical basis for that? Yeah. Son? Is, is he getting the Beatitudes or whatever you pronounce it? Beatitudes. Beatitudes. Yeah, the Beatitudes. Let's look at the Beatitudes. Let's see what the Beatitudes say about persecution. I mean, if Christ says that something's going to happen, we, we probably should take him at his word, right? Yeah, that's a rhetorical question. We should absolutely take him at his word. Uh, so, Beatitudes. So I wanted us to go and park there. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Listen, this great quote to write down. Keep in mind, uh, when you get persecuted for your faith, and guys, persecution comes in all different shapes and sizes. You may get made fun of for being a Christian. That's a form of persecution. Um, but you may get fired from your job because you're not willing to do something in good conscience because it contradicts what the Bible says and it causes you to struggle with remaining employed there. So you may have to quit your job or you may get fired from your job due to the cost of being a Christian. If things continue the way they're going in America, you may get canceled. Social media through your, your, your circles of colleagues because you're going to be deemed as intolerant for not approving of LGBTQIA lifestyles or not being willing to espouse the ideologies of the day, whatever they may look like in the future. Who knows where we're headed? You may get put in prison. Guys in Canada, this is just right up north of us. I mean, it's, it's a long ways from Edna, Texas. But guys, literally the country that is butted against the United States, just north of us, in the same continent, right above us, in North America, in Canada, people are being put in jail because they want to have church services during COVID-19. Their commitment to gathering together, 
for church services, for Bible study, for fellowship, whatever the case may be. That is coming with a cost. Fines, time in jail could happen in America. And guys, hopefully we're a long ways away from this. But this is not the norm in America to be in a nation where you can just be a Christian and everybody be okay with it. Most times in the history of the Western world, being a Christian not only leads to persecution in extreme cases when tyrants are at the helm of leadership, it can lead in death. And let's pray that the Lord and His grace will prevent that from happening in our nation. But it could happen, especially if God calls you to the mission field or if God leads you and your family to a different country for whatever your job is. Maybe you join the military. you got to go somewhere else. That can come with a great cost by virtue of being a Christian. And Christ warns about this in His Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 10-12. Listen to these words from our Lord and Savior. He says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christ is saying, hey, you are to be envied. You are to be happy. You are to be blessed if and when you receive persecution for your faith. Because this is how faithful men and women have been treated throughout the course of biblical history. The prophets were treated this way. Faithful Followers of Christ have always been subject to persecution in one way, shape, or form. And then you think about the, the verse, verse 11, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Christ. My friends, that's Athanasius. He was exiled for things he didn't even do. And my friends, you may be treated poorly in the future... Because of something you didn't even say or do, but people are going to spread rumors and lies about you and malign and slander your character, and you're going to have to face consequences for things you didn't have any part in. You didn't play any role in. That's a cost that comes with following Christ. It happens for faithful men and women. You are going to offend those who hate Christ and hate His gospel, unbelievers, and they can seriously cause persecution. But the good news is, no amount of persecution will cause a true believer to fall away from the faith. God will uphold you and sustain you throughout the midst of any persecution that comes into your life. And remember, all persecution comes into our lives ultimately by virtue of the sovereignty of God. He has a purpose and a plan in the midst of even the harshest forms of persecution. Namely, to accomplish your eternal spiritual good and His supreme glory. One more passage, though, that I want to share that really stood out to me. And Sai, I really appreciate you directing our attention to that text. But in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, this passage, I always come back to it when I am subject to persecution. Remember, this comes in the upper room discourse. Christ is hours away from being betrayed by Judas and handed over to the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman officials 
to be crucified. Again, an unjust crucifixion. Christ did nothing to merit him being handed over to be crucified. And here's what he tells the 11 with him that night to expect. And this applies to every believer in every age of human history. If you're in Christ today, this is just as much for you and it's just as much for me as it was for them. Listen to what Christ says. John 15, 18 through 21. Powerful text here. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were a non-believer, Christ says, the world would love you. It would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because I saved you, Christ says, the world hates you. Why will you get persecuted? Because I chose you out of the world. You're no longer a part of the world. You're mine. And the world hated me before it hated you. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, Christ says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Listen to that. All the things that you receive that's persecution, it's coming to you for Christ's namesake, for his glory. He uses persecution in your life, in my life, for his namesake, for his glory. Because he knows that the believer who's faithful through the persecution, if you're faithful through persecution, that's a means God uses to glorify himself and to confirm the validity of your faith. 1 Peter 1, 6-9. And guys, we are slaves of Christ. Do loss to Christu. If I were to use the Greek there. We are slaves of Christ. And as a result, slaves not greater than his master. If Christ was treated the way he was treated, why on earth should we as slaves to the one true master expect to receive anything differently? We shouldn't, and we won't receive anything differently for faithfulness in this life. So Athanasius, many times it seemed like he was alone in his fight to defend the doctrine of Christ's deity. Yet he refused to waver in his commitment to the truth. And the reality is, as Buznitz notes, Though Athanasius was one of the few people who stood so unwaveringly and so courageously during the 4th century, there were others like him. Unfortunately, the curriculum doesn't get into the details of these figures, but Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, and others stood just as firm as Athanasius in their stance for truth. And guys, just just an encouragement for you. I know we've kind of parked on some not-so-fun and negative realities over the past few minutes, here's an encouragement for you. God has His people in every age, no matter the circumstances. How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Elijah? When he's being persecuted and hunted down for being a true prophet of Yahweh, and he's, and he's lamenting before the Lord, 1 Kings 19 
18. He's crying out to the Lord God. I'm the only one. I'm the only one here, God. This is so hard. The persecution is so intense. And you know what God says in the midst of comforting Elijah? Hey, Elijah, I have 7,000 reserved for me who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have my people. You're not alone. My people are here. Be encouraged. And just like with Athanasius, just like with us, guys, there are always faithful men and women in this world who are serving the Lord, who are going to be with you in the midst of hardship. And that is why the body of Christ is so important. That's why being plugged into the local church is so important. That's why surrounding yourself with godly men and women is so important. So that you can have encouragement in your life to sustain you when persecution comes. And it will. When trials come, and they will. When difficult news comes, and it will come in this life. Hope that is an encouragement for you. Now, how did it all end? How did it all end? Well, on a human level, the faithfulness of men like Athanasius was rewarded in 380 AD when Emperor Theodosius I outlawed the heretical views of Arius and declared Nicene Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. So, let's look at the timeline there. Athanasius was at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It would be almost... It would be 56 years. It took 56 years before Nicene's labors... Or, not Nicene. Before Athanasius's labors to defend the Nicene Creed, to defend the truth of Scripture took that long before it was rewarded. Guys, let me just say this by way of application too. You may be faithful in this life, standing for the truth of Scripture, standing for the truth of any number of things that are consistent with a Christian ethic. It could be anything. Taking a stance for pro-life. Taking a stance for... Marriage to be between one man and one woman. It can be anything, guys. Anything that you feel called to stand for in this life. You may go your whole life and not be rewarded for it on this side of glory. You'll be met with a warm embrace from the blessed triune God in glory and all the holy angels and all the saints therein. You'll be celebrated for God's grace in and through you in glory. But guys, there are so many times in history where you look at faithful men and women and they received no reward on this side of eternity. And that's why we don't labor for applause of men. We don't labor for reward or for getting pats on the back. We labor, we stand for truth because of the glory of God and because of His view of us. It's all about Him. And God is faithful. He's patient. He's just. He's righteous. He will make all things right in His timing. You may not live to see it, but God will make it right. Just like He did here with Athanasius. It took 56 years before it was made right. But it was made right. And even if it's not made right... 
in this world, even if it's not God's will to make something right in this fallen, sin-cursed world, God, on the final day, on the last day, when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth, that is when things will be corrected. That is when justice will be served. That's when all things will be made new. That is the hope of the believer to cling to. And that brings us to another time for group discussion. If you notice in your box, in your workbook, right before Roman numeral 7, it says this, Athanasius endured 17 years of exile because he refused to compromise on the truth that Jesus is God. Why did Athanasius see the doctrine of the deity of Christ as so important? And what would you be willing to go into exile for? Let's start with the first part of that question. Why did Athanasius see the doctrine of the deity of Christ as being so important? Yes. Christianity, right? Christ. Huh. Christianity. Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. The whole religion's gone at that point. And plus, think about it. Uh, not only when we've looked at these texts, but throughout the Old Testament, there's prophecy about Christ, the Messiah, being divine. And Jesus himself claimed to be God several places throughout uh, his life, as recorded in the Gospels. He said he's the only way to the Father. If all that is wrong, we're wasting our time here today. I mean, does that ever dawn on you? Like, why do you, why do you come to church? Well, I can tell you what's at the top of that list. There's a lot of reasons why we come to church. You say, well, it's because it's commanded in the Bible. Okay, well, what if the Bible's not true? You know? And if Christ, let me tell you this, if Christ is not divine and all of his claims are not true, the Bible's not true. That's what's at stake. You have no basis for believing anything in the Bible if Jesus is not God and Jesus is not everything he claimed to be. That's what's at stake here, guys. And don't ever let anybody tell you that it's not that big of a deal. You should be willing to leave any church over this doctrine. And you should be willing to die for this doctrine. Serious. This is not me speaking in hyperbole. If this is not true, this is a waste of time. All of it. It's a terrible way to spend a Sunday. I mean, think about it. Jesus is not God. Like, sleep in, go to the lake, hang out with your friends, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we perish. What a waste of time if Christ is not who he claimed to be. And the Bible's not true. Any other thoughts? I think that kind of settles that question. Okay, second part of the question then. 
What would you be willing to go into exile for? What would you be willing to be put in prison for? What would you be willing to die for? Let's talk about theology. We can also talk about ethics. Would you be willing to die for the covenant of marriage being between one man and one woman? Is that something that we can just say, well, you know, it's, it's wrong, but it's not worth giving my life for. It's not worth being exiled for. Um, Sai? Especially in this day and age where homosexuality is like so huge now. Yep. You've got to take a stand against it. Yep. Because nobody, really, I mean, obviously, non-Christians aren't saying anything about it. And it's just being like approved. Like, yep. I think in California, too, now, you cannot preach against it. Or you can't, You, I think in California, you can't teach your kids it's wrong. How about this, guys? There are state laws now where if a kid feels like like if I'm a, if I'm an eight year old girl and I feel like I'm a boy trapped in a girl's body, in certain states in the U.S., it is against the law not to counsel them and help them think through the process of eventually doing gender reconstruction. In the in the Pacific Northwest, oh yeah. Would you be willing to go in exile for that? God created you biologically male or female. It's wrong to be a transgender. Would you be willing? Because guys, that's where we're headed. It may not be the deity of Christ. Nobody really cares about that in America right now. But the issue of today is sexuality and gender and the family and race. Those are the issues of the day. Charlie. Just like a few weeks ago, we had like a UIL competition, and I was in like the editorial writing, which is like you argue for like a sense or something. Right. And it was like a high school in Texas. Like, I think it was a real high school in editorial writing. I think they get like really careful. But apparently some principal went into a teacher's room, and she had like a police flag up for her brother who died in like, you know, in service. And she had an LGBTQ flag up because... I guess she was gay or something. Basically what happened was the principal said that the students didn't want her to have her police flag up, but she was just kind of, like, her brother that died and, like, people who, like, served. Because basically they said it was white supremacists. Hmm. And they just let her keep the LGBTQ flag up. It was kind of weird. Yeah. No, that's, that's, it's heartbreaking to hear, man. I appreciate you sharing that. Guys, like, let me give you some examples of things not to uh, go into exile for. Um, you know, any, any doctrine, any ethical teaching that doesn't cut to the heart of God's design or God's, I should say, the, 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 the fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentals of, I guess you could say it like this, anything that doesn't cut to the heart of the fundamentals of God's design or the fundamentals of God's faith, Christianity. You, you know, you can extend grace to those who aren't willing to go into exile or give their lives. But for anything that, guys, anything that's foundational to God's design, such as He created humanity, man and woman, He created marriage between one man and one woman, that is a that is that is not just a biblical teaching, that is a design. That is a natural law. Um, or something like the Trinity or the deity of Christ. Things that cut to the heart of the fundamentals 
of God's religion. Right? Those are fundamental. You cannot be a Christian and deny the Trinity. You cannot be a Christian and deny the deity of Christ. That is, that is a fundamental of God's religion. So I guess for me, just as a pastor, my counsel to you would be if you're going to stand for anything up to the point of exile or death, make sure it falls under one of those two categories and that you can defend that from Scripture. If you're going to take a stand for anything up to the point of exile, it better cut to the fundamentals of God's design of reality, God's design of the world, and it better cut to the heart of God's design or God's fundamentals, rather, of his religion. Fundamentals of design, fundamentals of religion. So by way of conclusion, then, Roman numeral 7, the legacy of Athanasius. Buznitz writes, here are a few lessons we can learn from the man nicknamed the saint of stubbornness. Four key lessons. Number one, we should be willing to contend earnestly for core Christian doctrine. Jude 3 and 4 emphasizes that. A right understanding of the person of Christ is not peripheral, but central to the faith. Athanasius recognized the importance of that truth, and he was willing to sacrifice much to defend it. Second lesson, at times, being faithful means you will also be unpopular. Athanasius became the object of political attack and public scorn because he refused to compromise. His tenacity provides a compelling example for us to consider. Lesson number three, the key to honoring God is to hold firmly and faithfully to what the Bible teaches. The pastors who signed the Nicene Creed did so because they saw the deity of Christ clearly taught in Scripture. That same Bible-based conviction fueled the dogged determination of Athanasius, even in the face of great opposition. And fourthly, fourth key lesson that we can learn from Athanasius. The examples of faithful men in generations past should motivate us to stand faithfully against the world in our own generation. Athanasius lived out his convictions with constancy and courage. His commitment to the truth did not waver, and his example should motivate us to do the same in our day. Biblical truth is constantly under attack. The question is, are we willing to stand for what we know is right and true? So final question for group discussion. Which of these four lessons from the legacy of Athanasius is most compelling to you? And what can we do to put that principle into practice? Sai? I'd say like the fact that he so unwaveringly stood strong in his faith. Yeah. That he wouldn't back down even though everybody was against him. Mm-hmm. Like that, especially like nowadays, everybody's so concerned about being popular. Yeah. That we we'll, like we act one way at church because we know we're not going to get criticized for that. But then you go to school or sports practices or whatever, and then you act one way, and there's that kind of goes into double life. But like a when you're truly a Christian, you'll always you'll be the same church and throughout Amen. your whole life. Amen. That's so key. I mean, so number two, you think being faithful means you will also be unpopular. That's that's kind of where you think is most significant. That's the one I picked too, by the way. Guys, 
Let me just say this too, pastorally, just by way of reminder. Anybody can have sound theology. Really, it's not that hard. You just study the Bible and you study theology, literature. You'll be good at theology. The demons are excellent at theology. But guys, being faithful in living out what you believe, that is what matters. Because if you're going to live out true Christ-like and biblically-based doctrine, you're going to live that out. You're going to be unpopular. Because it's going to cut right against what's popular in this world, what's applauded in this world. So, I agree, Cy. Definitely. Um, The fact that Athanasius cared more about honoring God and honoring God's word than being popular and being applauded by men, so much so that he was willing to be exiled for 17 years of his life for that, that stands out to me substantially. And if I may just say this, if we're going to take a stand for truth, what does that presuppose about us first? We've got to know the truth, and what else has to happen? Because I just said knowing theology is not enough. Knowing the Bible is not enough. You have to live it out, which presupposes what? That you're a believer. That you're a believer. That's exactly right. So to do any of these things, to do any of these things that Athanasius did, You've got to, first and foremost, you've got to be a Christian, right? Knowing the truth is important. You've got to know the truth, sure. We all agree to that. But you've got to be saved. Because you're not going to stand for truth if you're not in Christ. The cost will be too much. You'll fall away when pressure comes. One of the greatest evidences of saving faith is when you're willing to stand for truth regardless of the pressure regardless of the persecution, regardless of the cost. Any other thoughts on the life stand of Athanasius? Or anything we've discussed? We've been in the fifth chapter for, I think now, I think it's five or six weeks. So it was a long time here in this section of Forerunners of the Faith. But I, I think it's been useful. I hope it's been an encouragement to you all going through this portion of this literature, Lord willing, over the next several weeks, as we transition into the sixth chapter of this curriculum, we're going to be looking at arguably the most significant theologian in the first probably 1,400, 1,500 years of church history, a guy by the name of Augustine. You guys have probably heard his name, even if you've never read any of his writings. We will be looking at Augustine extensively over the next few weeks, and hopefully by God's grace we'll be able to learn much about his word, how it was defended in a portion of the patristic era, and Lord willing, hopefully we're able to make application to our lives about how we can follow in the footsteps of godly people that God raised up in generations past. But with that being said, allow me to close in a word of prayer. And then we'll be dismissed for our time of corporate worship. Appreciate your involvement in today's discussion. Hope you enjoy a great rest of your Lord's Day and week. But let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, again, it is such a joy to know you, to know that we are forgiven of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that he, in the fullness of time, was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life without sin. 
He died on the cross, willingly giving his life on behalf of all those who would ever believe. Christ on the cross being treated as if he had lived their life of sin and rebellion, bearing your wrath in their place, Father. And in doing so, Father, by your grace and through faith in Christ, his righteousness is given to the believers a free gift so that for all of eternity future, because justice was satisfied at the cross, the believer is able to know you and interact with you as if we had lived Christ's perfect life. That is the glory of the gospel, the great exchange, double imputation, all those rich biblical and theological realities that we bless you for. And God, we thank you that three days after his crucifixion and and earthly death, Christ was raised from the dead, victorious over sin, Satan, and death itself, appeared aboard than 500 witnesses over a span of 40 days, and ascended to your right hand, where he presently reigns and rules as King of kings and Lord of lords with you and the Holy Spirit, and intercedes at your right hand for every believer. Even now as we pray, Father, to you, we know Christ is praying for us, and that is so unfathomable. So humbling, God. May we never grow callous or indifferent or apathetic to these truths of the gospel. And may they fuel us. May they give us gratitude to live out faithful lives of Christian service and worship rendered to you. Every aspect of our life, Father, may it ultimately be an opportunity for us to magnify you and worship you. And Lord, as we Prepare to leave this time of Sunday school and transition into our corporate worship with the brethren here at FBC Edna. God, we do pray that our worship would come from spirit and truth, that it would be one that renders proper affections to you. And Father, that is one that is engaging with our minds as we meditate on the words that we sing and the words that are prayed and the words that are preached. And as we leave FBC Edna today, Father, May we be your scattered church in a way that is honoring to you, a way that is the light of the world, bringing your message, both in our words and in our deeds, to those in our community and all throughout the world, bringing those to exposure to the only message that can save any sinner from you and your wrath and judgment. We love you, God. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We commit the rest of it to you and this week to you in Christ's name. Amen.